intrigue, inquiries, insights. This is Pod Dam. Welcome to Pod Dam, a reservoir of relevant insights. I'm Michael Johnson. I'm an armchair philosopher trying to keep my head on straight in a world where extremes are the norm, feelings trump facts, and tribalism tries to ruin us all. Pod Dam seeks to find the answers to some of life's greatest mysteries from political theories from an everyman's perspective to the concept of the universe, the notion of statehood, and why more people couldn't figure out Orson Welles' famous War of the Worlds radio announcement was a hoax when they heard Martians were invading New Jersey, of all places. We're here to guide you on this river of truth with open minds, a search for balance, and a little humor. By the way, if you find our presentation enlightening and helpful, please share Poddam with friends and relatives you know who are misinformed by corporate and partisan media. On our last voyage, we discussed the meaning of wokeness, its origins as a term meaning awareness to injustice, to its current meaning as an illiberal, fascistic cancer to society that is causing severe harm to today's youth. Tonight, we'll be discussing an unfortunate metastasis of wokeness, cancel culture, and its effects on free speech and the stifling of ideas. I am joined, as always, by my fellow tour guides, Victor Tiffany and the one they call Papa Beaver. And for the first time on Poddam, we have our first guest. He is a theoretical cognitive scientist who co-founded the Free Expression Group, which studies the importance of free expression for the continued existence of humankind and is the author of the book, Expressly Human, which you can find wherever you get finer books. He is also the lead plaintiff in the case Chengizi versus Department of Health and Human Services, which was brought to fight the censorship by the U.S. government of dissenting voices during the COVID-19 pandemic. And his Science Moment series has amassed almost 6,000 views on YouTube. He is the perfect person to speak to about the dangers of censorship and cancel culture. Please welcome Dr. Mark Chengizi. Dr. Chengizi, why don't you tell us a little more about who you are and the work that you do. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a, my background is a you know PhD mathematics, undergrad physics, math, but I did all that to become a cognitive scientist, evolutionary biologist. So I've got uh, books on just sort of why we evolved to be the way we are, why we evolved color vision. It's actually an empath sense to see blood under the skin, to see emotions. Why your fingers get pruny when wet? They're actually rain treads. They're actually optimized to be rain treads, so you don't hydroplane in wet conditions. Why, how did we come to have language and music? Language culturally evolved to sound like stuff we're already good at hearing, sounding the so sounds of solid objects. So whether it's cultural, and, and there's a lot of other kinds of things I could go into, but often it's about how cultural evolution has designed stuff to leverage what we're already, we already have instincts for, or it's about how natural, natural selection has you know, designed us to be really good engineering devices at this or that, you know, these certain kinds of features. Why do your eyes face forward compared to, let's say, all of these many other kinds of mammals? It's actually to see more in forested, cluttered environments. It's not about predators like people thought. Trying to make these kinds of design hypotheses and uh, uh, rigorous so that you can actually show that they're the case. Um, so that was my background. Uh, uh, very kind of just fun science stuff from a very rigorous mathematical perspective. I tried to stay apolitical. Uh, despite being a publicly facing, you know, my sixth book came out this last summer. So I was always a publicly facing scientist writing books. I had, you know, I was the main scientist on a couple TV shows on National Geographic and, uh, and Head Games and also appeared often on Brain Games. So I've always been very outwardly focused on writing for lots of magazines. 
and I tried to be apolitical. I was libertarian, but in academia, that might as well be uh, fascist far right as far as they're concerned. And in 2010, I left academia because it was so stifling uh, politically, but even more so just the academic environment. You always have to beg uh, for money from the feds, essentially, to come up with three years of bullshit that you wouldn't want to do. Uh, and then you're, if you're lucky, you get the honor of doing three years of bullshit experiments that I don't even want to do. And so that was just, uh, I said, screw this. I'm going to start my own research uh, institute. And I have a company that came out of my research, which is about colorblindness technology, uh, vein finder technology for nurses that comes out of this color research. So between these entrepreneurial things, I've been able to continue being an academic outside of, ac outside of academia and much freer, but still apolitical until 2020 of March because... I just figured there was no reason, except for free expression related things. I figured I didn't want to, I've argued my whole life about left, right things. And, you know, I, but I didn't fig figure that I wanted to make that my persona on social media. But, and I don't still view any of this as left, right. You know, the, this whole COVID fiasco isn't left, right. But it became left, right afterwards for sort of arbitrary political partisanship, sort of, you know, political tech, you know, plate tectonic kinds of reasons. Uh, by May or, or, or June of, the, of 2020, what started off as not really very political at all. All the libertarians that I knew of went super Karen. All the conservative, you know, mags and, and Quillette types folks went super Karen. And a, and a lot of the left went super Karen. A lot of my first colleagues in terms of anti-lockdowns were communists, capital C communists. And they understood firsthand, like, you can't freeze an economy you know, they're always worried about fucking the economy. And they're really sens you know, sen you know, sensitive to this issue. You can't freeze an economy, right? And they were often, the, all, before I met all of these other scene reality folks, we were all alone, some of the first folks I found. So it was all mishmash of different kinds of viewpoints. But by, I don't know, let's say June, it had sort of re rever reverberated back to a very left-right polarizing kinds of discussions um, as they typically are, are want to. So yeah, for the last three years, um, I've been really on the forefront of arguing against these uh, draconian interventions, but I've been focusing more on trying to understand the mass dynamics of large groups. I see the events that happened in March as one of many similar sorts of examples that have happened in the Cultural Revolution in China. And uh, before that, well, before that, as long as there's been humans, you end up with these kinds of mass hysterias. Uh, you find it in Nazi Germany. You find it. Uh, with the Tutsis and Hutus, you find it in Iran. I'm half Iranian. My wife's from Iran. Um, in terms of the Islamic Revolution, it's the same shit, different icing in all of these different kinds of cases. And so, trying to understand the universe requires the kind of scientist that science that I'm good at, which is these sort of large-scale emergent phenomena, complex systems phenomena that happen when there's these large things that are selecting for certain kinds of things over time, selection pressures. So that's what really what FreeX. The Free Expression Institute is about understanding free expression, but also understanding the really the physics of it with large numbers of humans and individuals, how it can break, and then you, how you can have these uh, uh, waves of, of, uh, of group things that go through it. How can you, you know, structure them so that they're more impervious to that? How can you potentially unravel or how, un, you know, how unravelable are they? And you know, understand, trying to work out the mathematics of these sorts of society level kinds of uh, spread of information and, and dynamics kinds of questions. All right. Sounds good. Um, so for the last couple of weeks, 
we the three of us have been discussing you know issues relating to free speech we we went over the uh, we went over the Twitter files that uh, Elon uh, released um, and we've just been discussing you know a bunch of the um, the nuances and the the, the um, greatnesses and the shortcomings that free speech involves and um, you know, we wanted, you know, I wanted to have you on so that you could discuss a bit of your, you know, what's going on with your lawsuit, how, um, how, you know, what, what Twitter's been doing over the last couple of years, um, you know, um, some stuff about cancel culture and everything. So I think your, uh, your background and what you've been doing over the last few years really, uh, really ties in these, these things. So, um, you know, why don't you, why don't you tell us, What's up, Victor? Can I ask a question about it, just to sort of kick this off? Sure, go ahead. Basic question. What is, because I really haven't gotten into this very much, what is cancel culture? First question. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. Uh, and one way to, yeah, I mean, we, we refer by cancel culture to a particular thing that's been around. I think when we now we say we're referring to kind of something that's over the last 10, 15 years, but all of us are, are you know, two and a half of us are old enough to remember. This goes back to the 80s. It goes to the 70s. Um, this idea of people, the left showing up to talks didn't, and, and trying to shout down the speaker and kick them out or prevent them from speaking didn't start with uh, what was the famous Twitter guy that got kicked off of Twitter like eight years ago. And he's always was attacked at universities, a prominent blonde kind of young kid I kept having a mental block. Um, Milo Yiannopoulos? Yeah, Yiannopoulos, right? Yeah. <laughs> You know, I remember uh, Horowitz used to show up in 1980, late, you know, late 80s when I was in university, and all of the leftists would be showing up, shouting him down, preventing him from speaking. These things aren't this cancel culture, which I think is referring to this more recent 10, 15 years, isn't new. People always are, you know, myopic in terms of how what they think is happening now is new now. No, these are the same universal human uh, 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 characteristics that uh, try to uh, demonize their opposition. They treat them as an outgroup who's unclean, uh, racist, homophobic uh, witches. They're effectively witches, and you try to cancel them or censor them or you know uh, vilify them in all of these various ways. And they're not just trying in the sense of scheming. No, they really believe it. They really believe that their enemies are uh, subhuman or whatever the kinds of things and deserving of that kind of treatment. This is a very universal. Cancel culture isn't something recent. It's a human universal that will always uh, be with, with us. And, of course, the most recent victim or at least 2021 in particular, were the unvaxxed. And of course, concomitant with that was the, you know, the, the, the deniers, even before the unvaccinated were targeted, even in, as of March of 2020, I was already being labeled a denier. The science journalists I'd interacted with for 10 years on Twitter because I was, you know, an outfacing, I was writing science uh, magazines and they were, in, you know, publishing, we're talking about myself in all these magazines. They suddenly said, well, we don't want to cover Mark's stuff anymore. They'd be writing to one another, like, you know, broadcasting on Twitter. We'd, so it would be so fun if we had an app so that if we showed up at the, you know, the bookstore, it would remind us not to buy Mark's book, that kind of thing, you know, sort of uh, jokey, semi-serious blacklisting. Uh, so we became the deniers. And then soon it was really disproportionately focused on the unvaccinated as the largest target of all. So cancel culture, I don't see it as anything uh, new uh, I think this is something that's going to always be with us. And it's just the same kind of psychosocial dynamics that I'm trying to understand in a rigorous fashion, understand really how do these things work? Uh, what are the uh, physics that, that lead to these universal bubbles that are always the same, although they look different in certain uh, different kinds of icing that they have? 
is this stemming, in your view, from the left? It sounds like it's always come from the left. Or is I, it just recently? I think I, I'm, I, as, as, a, as a libertarian and hanging around uh, the folks that I usually run, which are on the left, I'm feeling it more from the left. I'm trying to always correct from my own biases. I think these are universal features. I certainly see it on the right, too, on the far right. Uh, as, as a libertarian, I, I, I'm, they're typically, in this instance, my friends, you know, because um, we're all pushing back on these uh, draconian lockdowns. But a lot of, t I mean, half the time what I'm arguing, I'm, I'd say not half the time, 90% of the time I'm arguing against these lockdowners. 10% of the time I'm arguing against the people that are on my side who are what I would call conspiracy theorists in the bad sense, that they have these radical tangles of, of boxes that are all intermingled that People started that, you know, this is all planned since 1995 kind of things. And they characterize the opposition as evil, unclean people that have planned this to kill parts of the population. They have, again, almost the same kind of that their enemies are witches. Right. That's the, that the kind of attitude, uh, intentful witches uh, on the other side. So I think these are these are things that are found on both sides. I do feel that it's been a much bigger problem in my lifetime in terms of actual policies in place within the dynamics of the United States, it's been coming mostly from the left, but I don't think it's per se has to be. See, I thought for a yeah. while that, that I didn't have a good understanding of it, but I thought at least in the recent uh, version that it was basically a good thing because they were canceling people like uh, uh, Bill Cosby and, uh, and Weinstein, right? These are people who don't deserve to be, uh, you know, benefiting from our appreciate or our uh, what's the word consuming their their culture, right? Their input, their whatever they provided us, Weinstein's movies or Bill Cosby's show or any. You know, I thought it was basically like a boycott. It, it, it's not that. Well, I mean, I, I mean, the Me Too kind of thing, which is really what you're referring to, I feel like is much uh, more recent than even what we typically refer to when we're talking about cancel culture. Um, I think there's, you know, one of the things that I study in this last book is about is, is social networks are reputation networks. They work over time to move us towards the truth because over time you and I are in a discussion and uh, I push reputation chips onto the table depending on how confident I am about, hey, do you even know who I am? That kind of thing. I push a lot of chips if I'm really douchebagging that way. Or I say, you don't know what you're talking about. You're an idiot. Now I'm being disdainful for, for you. And you can actually work out mathematically in this kind of um, this kind of framework, the degree, how what kinds of emotional, each time you emotionally express, you're doing one or the other of those things. Or I'm being humble instead of being proud. Or I'm being respectful instead of being disdainful. And these do different things in terms of how the poker game, the reputation betting occurs. So after a while, maybe I was really douchebaggy and I lost you. It turns out I was wrong. I've lost a lot of reputation to you and you gained in reputation. These are happening over you know trillions of pairwise interactions and all of the kinds of social networks. And over time, people get canceled all by themselves because they just get humiliated. They lose, they're just dumb or they're stupid or they say ridiculously strong things that try to be false. Over time, they just lower and lower and lower. So one notion of canceled is that they should just be kicked off of Twitter. They shouldn't even be allowed to have a voice. And I think that's wrong. Um, having a voice isn't a privilege. Having a voice is a liability, just like playing poker. You offer someone to play poker, you're not offering them money. You're offering them also the ability to lose all their money. When you're in the game of free speech, you can lose everything. You can be utterly humiliated. And this is why even dictators, even dictators that we think are evil, we need to let them speak because it's only by letting them speak that we can humiliate them and ridicule them 
or and they know that, and so they're potentially more likely to say something more reasonable, and then you can hold them to that. They, you know, but over time you can cancel them in the organic way, which is via the network of free expression. Yeah, we. Uh, one thing that I I was studying this last week in cancel culture was was uh, a, a couple of scenarios. The most recent one is is Whoopi Goldberg. And I, I don't know if I would say this is from the right or the left or uh, how to characterize it, but she said something uh, in the past about Nazi Germany not being about or uh, not being about race. And she was lambasted for it and she was shamed into apologizing and saying that she didn't agree with that. Then recently she doubled down on her old position. And she got attacked again and silenced again. I, I think she was kicked off the view for a week the first time. And this time, um, I don't remember what the consequences were, but she she had to apologize again for her viewpoint because she was shamed into it. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we see this we see this a lot, but sometimes we just see people completely shut out, like uh, Gina Carino. Um, was shut out. She was a a, a star on, on the Mandalorian. They they pulled her. They went so far as to pull her action figure because she f- said that she felt that Republicans were like the Jews in in Nazi Germany, and she was ridiculed for making that comparison. And and maybe the comparison was a little bit hyperbolic, a little bit outlandish, but not so much that I think she deserved to be completely silenced or shut off. So. One thing we see with cancel culture is we see people shut off with no chance of redemption. Where I remember one lady was a teacher. She she uh, she said Sacagawea and she made a joke about it uh, to teach Sacagawea uh, in a math class. And she was told to they wanted her fired, but they also wanted her to apologize. And I thought, well, you're asking this person to lose their job completely and. You're, you're providing no path of redemption and you still an expected apology for her and to me that's where cancel culture is uh, well they're, they're going in the wrong direction you, you, you've also got the same thing like it, kind of ironically Bob Barr who is known for being a racist finds out that he's part black he changes his tune and everybody embraces him Uh-oh, a lot of people on the left embraced him uh, for changing his tune Roseanne Barr she says something stupid while on Ambien that she shouldn't have said. She she loses her show and she she gets written out and she has no chance to apologize or any chance of redemption, which I, I see as being a problem is, is the hypocrisy and also not just the hypocrisy, but the inability. Cancel culture creates an inability for any self-redemption. Yeah. And, and, and it, it, it also, I mean, even... I mean, so a lot of people will say, um, hey, Twitter's censoring people um, if they believe that Twitter, of course, they, they, they were censoring people. But if, they, if for the folks that said, OK, they're censoring, they're a private company and it's fine, as was their attitude. Um, and these people could say, well, they're they're you know, the, it's the Today Show or whatever the show that Whoopi was on. I don't know which one, The View or whatever. And it's a private thing. But. Uh, and, and so it's not a violation of free expression unless the government is uh, involved in it, and which, of course, is, is wrong, and it's uh, very myopic. The, 
a, a nation that has the government's hands out of free expression as it should be, but is such that cancel culture is around at every corner. All the private uh, companies are, are potentially censoring uh, their enemies. Even your you know condo complex HOA management could say, okay, now no one's allowed in the pool area to talk about you know Trump or wear a MAGA hat. Um, you know you can you can imagine the intolerance can just spread throughout culture such that everybody's afraid to speak and there's discrimination um, on on pol- politics. On, you know, it's usually it's, it's unidirectional. Um, because one side becomes the unclean side that you're not allowed to say that is a million times more dangerous than government censorship totalitarianism is what you totalitarianism doesn't happen by top-down government control they can never just have enough power to impose the kind of thinking trying to unthink thoughts that you want to think it only happens when your neighbor or your own children might report you for it when it happens across the whole population that kind of uh, unclean outgroup thing spreads and everybody's keeping their mouth shut out of fear and this is this is what what was happening uh, and it's been happening and increasing over time over the last 10 years and we've been able to document that um in some ways free expression was people should be allowed to take you know people should be allowed to say what they want in all these polls of undergrads but when it said um should they be allowed to say political things politically related questions the left was disproportionately likely to say that no that should be disallowed that should be censored they shouldn't be allowed to say that whereas the right was still just as open on, on all of the issues so the left has become over the last 10 years disproportionately sensorial. And so this is a tolerance issue. And this is why um, I, when I started the Free Expression Research Institute in early 2021, it hadn't yet dawned on me that the federal government was actually seriously violating the First Amendment in dr- droves. They were just, in fact, they were. I, I just, I, it was boggling my mind. I, I really didn't, I thought, yeah, they might be occasionally having an occasional glance you know, towards them and Twitter might be a little bit afraid, but there was not direct lines of communication constantly between them as we now know. Um, but I was already sufficiently worried that I started the research institute and, and, and had tons of, you know, I've got, you know, 250 videos on my science moment series at YouTube, probably two thirds of them are just on free expression on the complex, many different angles uh, concerned with free expression. And a lot of these were motivated not because of government censorship, because it's much more complicated than that. But the reason uh, the government felt uh, inclined and able and, and uh, ready to do it and came out in April of 2021 and said, we are coordinating with Twitter sir, misinformation. We are ensuring that if you're uh, banned from one, you are banned from all of them. There's no reason why you should just be banned from one. They announced proudly that they were doing it, right? This is the left and the right have always held First Amendment uh, as a dear thing that you would never violate. The government doesn't come out and announce this kind of thing unless the culture underneath has, has made it such that this is now something that they know is okay and is virtuous to say. So it's already on the back on the on the backbone of, of the culture riding this wave that the, that the government now felt completely justified, righteous to come out and say, we're going to now censor misinformation. And so that's what made it even more dangerous. The government wouldn't have dared to do that if everybody was the way they were 10 years ago in terms of the First Amendment. You just right. said that the left and the right you embrace free speech, free expression. What happened to the left? Because it's clear to me that they're they're behind the council culture and certainly behind censorship. Yeah, I mean, it, it, as far as I know, um, this uh, egregious First Amendment violations is 
didn't really start until 2021 with the Biden administration. And that's clearly left. And the, the long, you know, I'd say 10 years, 15 years, but even going back to my undergraduate days, the belief that you should throw away all of the newspapers of the Republican rag, you know, at every university, they'd go find the, you know, you know, when they get dropped off, so they go throw away all the newspapers into the dumpster, you know, they, they'd interrupt all the speeches. This was always a left thing. So I, I, I don't have a great explanation. You could, you know, for COVID related interventions, you could say the COVID interventions are centralized, you know, uh, uh, civil liberties violating things at the for the sake of utilitarian reasons, which goes more with the left. That kind of makes sense. But exactly why the left and centralization should um, be more prone to uh, uh, being intolerant to, uh, uh, you know, one, here's one argument. And in fact, I've made this point myself in, 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 in some of my videos and, talk, and, and writing. The left does not respect decentralization, right? And uh, whether it's uh, decentralized markets, and this is when, if you're a libertarian and a lot of folks on the right are effectively 99% libertarian, you understand the power of decentralized uh, this decentralization is what makes free markets work and what makes them so brilliant. And it's what makes communism or centralized socialism so dumb. Right. But the same thing happens on the free expression side. What makes free expression and open debate so smart is that even though it's so messy and ugly and like confusing and, and sometimes mean over time, the networks slowly move towards the truth. And it's the only way that we can do it because anything that's not a free expression network, um, as soon as you have any kind of centralized control, fact checkers, anything like this, you mess it up. Um, you invariably mess it up. And even if everybody's trying to be good, not to mention that it's going to be abused, as it always will be. But folks who are centralized, you know, they believe in the power of centralization or they don't understand decentralization because decentralization is complicated. It, it, it boggles your mind how, you know, a billion people can all pairwise interact consensually and shit can get done. Right. You end up with incredible design and you get, you know, an iPhone that is literally like more complicated than anything that existed even just 20 years ago, right? And we, we can get it, you know, a used one for like 400 bucks or something like this. These, it creates amazing things uh, just as free expression does. So I think there's both political reasons for why they're naturally, of course, centralization oriented because the very notion of the left is all about centralization. And the kind of, in my opinion, uh, I'm not sure if it correlates with this, or not. I'm not sure if the average person on the right, if you ask them deep questions about decentralization, whether they'd be any more, you know, you know, uh, erudite in terms of the powers of decentralization. They're not evolutionary biologists or econ economists, but I think implicitly that's sort of the difference. The, the left embraces centralization, believes it's the only way to create smart, powerful, good utilitarian consequences, and uh, at, least, at least the libertarians uh, uh, believe uh, the exact opposite. So what you you kind of refer to a few characteristics of free expression is danger. Like you can't yell fire in a crowded theater unless there's a fire. And then some equivalence thereof uh, online. Doxing, doxing, for example, is the main one we did. Do you think doxing should be um, illegal? Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I don't have, uh, I don't have, so any, there's, of course, going to be boundaries of, of speech that are going to be uh, illegal, coordinating, uh, inciting violence, uh, coordinating you know, attacks on Doug or whatever it might be, right? Child pornography, any of these, there's going to be some envelope where 
clearly over here we we shouldn't have it because it's a really and we'd all agree and then clearly here we think it should be free expression and exactly where that line is is always going to be vague and unclear just like you know should should kids be able to drive when they're 14 and a half or 17 and a half or why 16 it's going to be arbitrary right we're sure that 20 well, is too late but so you know yeah well, one way to resolve that is through free expression expression and debate and, and to be able to discuss whether uh judaism is an ethnicity or or a religion right oh yeah sure that yeah but like, like but arguing, but it, yeah but announcing that that doug is going to be in you know at pizza hut at three o'clock this afternoon so everybody get their you know their their billy clubs and let's go meet up and go there uh, you can imagine that no you know it, i mean of course we can do that on eight you know on, on our at&t networks and call and do that with one another but you can imagine a free expression oriented network uh if they know that it's going on, has some obligation to stop coordinating violence and you know and crimes. One thing interesting happened with the libs of TikTok. Like, uh, it was difficult to draw a gray line because I think someone like Jeff Chauvin and protesting at his home, and I'm I'm perfectly okay with that. But what happened with with libs of TikTok? This is where free speech actually worked. Uh, she was doxed. Her address was given out in her name. She she lost some of her privacy. She had 400,000 followers on Twitter, and that over tripled to, I think it was uh, about 2.5 million followers just from being exposed. And she said it was actually, that, that free speech against her actually turned into, turned out to be one of the best things because... She's now a public figure. Now people know who she is, and now people are following her. Um, a, a, another interesting thing is how boycotts actually end up backfiring, like uh, like uh, BDSM. I, I think that that's the, the, the boycott of Israel. That actually ends up backfiring because then you have all your, your, uh, your, your, your Christian Zionists end up buying more from, from Israel uh, than the actual boycott did. So it, one thing that's interesting with free speech is, is sometimes it does end up balancing out and working in the favor of the person who was attempted to be canceled. Yeah, uh, that, that's interesting. I mean, my own, uh, I, there would be nothing that, I'm trying to focus, you're often sometimes asking questions that are outside of the free expression kind of social media environments. I certainly think there's, uh, it, it's going to be a, it would always be, of course, legal to boycott and choose to coordinate with your friends. Hey, we don't want to buy, you know, um, Pizza Hut because they're involved in these particular activities. I think, nevertheless, um, there needs to be a strain of thinking amongst everybody that has just a kind of tolerance. And you don't go, actually. This is, you know, this is not academic. What's the one um, that that fast food restaurant that says eat chicken, not beef? It's, it's Chick-fil-A. Not, it has, yeah, Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A yeah. right? And so they, they've been going after Chick-fil-A for 15, 20 years. And so that kind of general intolerance, you can say, yeah, I guess you guys can do that. But just guys, relax. You know, just you, you can't go after it just because they don't have the viewpoint that you have. You don't turn them into unclean people. And in fact, here's here's another way that the right is has been forced to be tolerant. Every movie star effectively, except for like a half a dozen movie stars that we know are conservative, you know, and they all like. There's only like six, and we know who they are, right? 
And the rest are far left. And if they ever speak anything about their political views, it's appalling because they say awful things about the right. You know, the right, they're, they're, like they'll just say they're racist. They'll just basically say they're witches. You're like, I don't even need to hear this. I want to like that star. I want to watch the star. I don't want to think about, but we have to get, we have to learn to be tolerant because pretty much everybody in the public sphere that's famous is on the left, you know? And um, so we've learned to be tolerant. Even though they hate us, we learn to be tolerant. And the other side seems to live in a bubble so that they occasionally learn that, holy crap, someone doesn't have a view like me. Um, okay, yeah, you could cancel them, you could boycott them, but you need to learn how to have a tolerance to respect people's opinions and realize that yes, you might believe that their viewpoint leads to harms and is more is bad for society, but they believe your, your viewpoint is, does the same, is also harmful, and they're not asking to censor or cancel you. And this is the biggest thing about team reality, the folks that are against the, the lock, you know, the anti-lockdowners. Not a one of us, despite two years of the lockdowners um, saying incredibly dangerously false things, you know, leading to 50 million jobs lost just in the United States, hundreds of thousands of businesses gone, worldwide millions of businesses gone, the developing world set just radically um, dangerous consequences. Never once did we ask that they be censored on the basis of this deeply dangerous misinformation. But the other side, for the relatively small voice of us speaking up against their civil rights violating things, we had to be censored, right? So there's this deep asymmetry between the sides, which is, you know, the COVID thing need not even have been left right, but the left right asymmetry and free expression, which had already been developed and turned into um, an asymmetry in terms of uh, sensorialness um, for COVID versus uh, the anti lockdowners, lockdowners versus the lockdowners. How do you explain the benefit of tolerance? I mean, I'm with you on this. I'm not arguing or debating with you. I'm just trying to figure out how to uh, go about. Uh, promoting tolerance because yeah, I think culture. you're right. It's crazy that none of us are supporting cancel culture, but we wanted to find out more about it and, and dig into it a bit. And, and it's rather appalling. I have another question down the road here, but I just first want to find out about how do you think we might best go about building that tolerance? In other words, he's talking to an intolerant person or uh, spectrum on the, the uh, side of the spectrum spectrum, political spectrum, so a large group or class of people, what's, what's, what benefit do they have from getting rid of this intolerance and this cancel, this censorship, this cancel culture? I mean, they, they think, expressing one piece of it, uh, you know, it's the right thing to do just to make sure Trump doesn't get reelected. This is before 2021. This is in 2020. There's a massive, uh, it wasn't even a conspiracy, it was right out in the open, uh, collaboration between the broad left and, and their associated media to make sure Trump didn't get reelected. Uh, Bernie or Bust, for example, was never mentioned. It was just as active in 2020 as it was in 2016, but you never heard about it because there was decisions to make sure that uh, the Democrats was as unified as possible. And of course, you know about uh, Hunter Biden's laptop. And that was all collaborated and all agreed upon in an open conspiracy to to block free speech and, and to uh, make sure Trump was not elected. Well, I, and I think certainly that drives some of it is just explicit political gain. But I think that the a lot of the folks, and you know, we we're arguing with them every day on Twitter, public policy officials, all these academics, just tons and tons of people, 
they have what I would call a very intuitive but sixth grade understanding of truth and how we find it. They believe that they're on the correct side, as do we, but the difference is that they believe that um, it's enough to go look at the oracle of the science and it just spits out some kind of truth that then once we know what's true, we just prevent everybody else from saying anything that's not the truth. Right? And the same thing comes up actually in just even evolutionary biology. And a lot of people, so I deal as, a, as an evolutionary biologist, evolutionary neurobiologist, we sometimes forget because we study evolution and natural selection all the time. Natural selection is counterintuitive. Uh, the much more intuitive notion is that God created all this design. If you find tons of design, in fact, the most interesting design in the universe is probably all of these animals here on Earth, right? It is highly non-intuitive to suggest that there was not a designer that did all this stuff, right? So in the same kind of thing, when you end up with finding truths that we've discovered over all of these years, uh, well, it's much more intuitive that some centralized organization called the science or you know, particular institutions or government, something has discovered these things. And it's through those processes that you get these highly complicated truths, which take a lot of design to find them. So it is counterintuitive to, to imagine that science itself is a decentralized network of all of this messy stuff going on. And the generalization, a different kind of way that we have to, is just more in society general is the public square, you know, generalized. And that is the means by which we move towards the truth. And I think that's deeply counterintuitive. We don't have intuitions for this naturally. And uh, so I think it's always good to remember that because every generation needs to be retaught that free expression is the mechanism by which we just, we slowly discover the truth. So a couple of different kinds of arguments you can, I mean, I spend all my time on, free, you know, all my entire science moment series on YouTube is in some sense trying to make these arguments intuitive and in everywhere that I know how uh, to people. But, you know, just a couple off, offhand are, uh, um, you want, and I meant, I hinted at this before, again, you want your enemies to not be canceled, i.e. kicked off of the public square. You want them to speak so that you can humiliate them. You can then say, look, here's all the ways that you're wrong. And not only that, you were super confidently, you know, so confident when you said it, which makes it even work worse. You didn't just say, I think it might be the case that, you know, lockdowns work. No, you said they totally 100% work and we've, we've totally always done them. And like, I said, no, you were like so confident that you were willing to, you know, let all of these businesses die and so forth. And that makes your humiliation so much worse, but you can stay and maybe they can redeem themselves. And in fact, there's a lot of people on Team Reality now. When you look back in the, in March and April of 2020, they were screamy Karens, you know, and they've tried to kind of cover up this fact. But they've done enough, you know, good work since then. People have given them a pass. But that's what you, that. So one way is to to tell them that's like if I hate you and I want to take your money and you walk up to the poker table, what do I say? Go away! I don't want to play with you. No, I say come sit down, sit down at the poker table, buddy. You know, that's how your money. That's one way to explain. Another way is that if they're going to play the game of censoring once they're in power with the Biden administration in power or even just, you know, private, you know, right now the Biden administration, Biden administration is just top down doing it. But even if they weren't, if you're going to use the power of gigantic private companies to censor your opponents, what happens if it went the other way around? If that's the game you want to start playing, it could easily switch. I'm not sure that they're they're really going to take that argument. They just they just hope to snuff us out 
forever and always, you know, I think is what's going on in their mind. Once we're snuffed out, it'll always be the truth from here on out and like life will be, you know, butterflies. So I'm not sure how effective that is. Uh, but anyway, that's my science moment series in some sense trying to come at this from every possible angle uh, to make it clear that it is the mechanism by which we discover the truth. There is no such thing as the science. It's just a scientific mess across uh, hundreds of thousands of millions of individuals. We Do you probably think... don't believe there's such a thing as the truth either. I, I, I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, maybe some approximation of reality. The way you speak of the truth is very modern and, and enlightenment, but the, the postmodernists would really have big doubts as to whether you can ever, ever arrive at the truth. And this isn't an opposition of free expression. I know, I think what you're saying is to get closer to some understanding that shared understanding that resembles what we think might be the truth but as far as I mean, so there's two different truths i want to make it clear here and i'm not talking about technical truths you know the speed of light the the gravitational constant whatever they're arguing about but then there's political truths like the value of lockdowns um i'm not so sure there is a truth to be no, I, yeah i agree i agree there in, in that case yeah you can both sides need not be wrong in that debate but there's over even even over time and this is a long more complicated thing that i've been meaning to, to myself spend more time on i think there are notions of moral progress and and over time through this the free expression process these things that were, were potentially live options just 20 years ago uh not to mention 100 years ago or in 500 years ago are completely off the table because We've all kind of agreed that you it's very hard to hold those stances and morally also be consistent with the bunch of other stuff that we all believe that we have to also hold. So I think we've made a lot of moral progress in, in those regards. Um, and whether you want to call those truths or not, is you can philosophically debate. I think there is some sense in which they are. I think there's some isomorphic ways that you can think about these. And so I spend a lot of time in philosophy of science. Uh, and so I. I I think about this kind of thing a lot, but I, but I agree uh, that those are still of a different nature than uh, scientific truths. Yeah. Do you think we're evolving towards a? Um, I I know that there are free speech options on on, on social networks. Do you think that uh, we will naturally evolve towards those where uh, companies like Facebook and Instagram? go the wayside because they're not pro free speech, and other ones will pop up to take their place. I hope so, right? But the only, you know, the only example that I can give you where there's some hope in this regard is one billionaire being such a weird guy that he actually bought Twitter and looks like he might be moving in the right direction. There's still some skepticism about whether he's really doing, but you know, that that's not the that doesn't sound like normal organic, you know, evolutionary processes. That's just kind of a weird blip that I don't know how to generalize from even if he turns out to be everything we hope for for free expression. You know, at the moment, given that everything else, uh, setting that aside as a weird blip, it looks like it's going the complete opposite direction. Apple and Google and Instagram and YouTube and and uh, all, all of these things conspiring together to make sure that Parler was kicked off of Apple's app you know, store, right? Um, all, they are just ensuring that there is one voice and they're all explicitly working together as part of the trusted news initiative along with regular media to ensure that only one narrative on COVID related things came out. And once these things get embedded and, and now the you know, federal government's working with them, these things, 
uh, have a large trouble going away. And I'm still censored after you know 1.5 years on Twitter, despite Elon Musk buying the company to bring back free speech. I'm still you know labeled sensitive content for as I have been for 1.5 years, and have hardly any impressions relative to what I had at the beginning of 1.5 years ago. All my impressions just crashed because. Anybody that goes, they just see this is this is this is sensitive content. This is sensitive content, and many people can't yeah. ever through it. So, uh, I would hope that you're right. I do have this kind of ideal that Twitter now is just going to explode with excitement, and, and it's going to potentially they're going to have a YouTube kind of service competition to YouTube, and people are just going to be really just putting everything on there, and no one wants to leave because they built these big networks, mm-hmm. and that. Facebook certainly feels like it's a deadster for even ten years, five years. It just felt completely dead to me, and 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 no one wants to be there. And they're censoring the heck out of me. I only reached ten people out of my one thousand five hundred. I ever seen never seem to reach the same because I know I'm censored, um, and they tell me that I'm censored all the time. So I do feel like you might be right, but I have very little evidence um, to uh, back that up at this time. I don't think he is right. I think we're aiming more towards silos, informational silos. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, and I and, and my fear, I, I hope you're right about Twitter. My fear is just the opposite, that, you know, all these uh, Democratic Party-affiliated media people are going to bail out because, of, you know, something that Musk did, they didn't like, right? The, 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 his temporary censorship of the people reporting on the doxing situation with yeah. the I think it's mostly talk, these people saying that they're going to leave. Yeah, Twitter was, the, in my opinion, was and will always uh, have been the first true uh, public square, you know, universal public square. And because it, by the time Getter and Parler and Gab, Minds or whatever, all these in truth got into it, Twitter had already become like a whole nation with these complex connectivities with all of your neighbors. And if someone asked you, hey... Um, let's all move to let's say another america prime in another part of the earth where everything is a little bit cheaper half the price but when you get there all of your neighbors are going to be new neighbors because you have no you're, you're not going to preserve any of the connectivity of the friends let's say that you have here no one's going to move you know like very few but like no like i like my life here i like all the connections that i have we've developed a life by virtue of all those social connections and in yeah tomorrow everybody could suddenly jump onto parlor and reconnect with all the same people requires like a viral mass movement all at once because no and it's just really really hard to make those kinds of mass movements happen because everybody else is waiting for everybody else to do it this is why you know just this people often never overthrow governments because it, it requires everybody to do it all at once and it would be really easy if it happened so i think twitter people don't want to leave if they go to one of these other networks they're just sitting there by themselves twiddling them with their thumbs and they don't have all these followers that they built up and it often takes a decade and still some luck to get these, unless you're Joe Rogan, you show up at Gab and suddenly you're going to have a million followers. Right. There's a small number of people that are good wherever they go. A lot of these other people are going back to, to you know, to square zero and they're just not going to ever leave. You mentioned Parler. I'm just, I know a little bit about that and particularly how it disappeared. Do you know who was instrumental behind uh, Parler being taken down by Apple? Uh, not per se. Yeah. Oh, are you asking or are you about to tell me the answer? No, I'm asking. I, I know oh. the answer. Oh. I'm asking if any of you know. I don't oh, well, know. I mean, you said you do know the answer. I do know the answer. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I remember hearing something about, you know, they. I thought Apple was the host of their of their, their cloud services and just said, we don't like you and we're turning it off. But there might be some deeper story that I don't know. 
Yeah, AOC told no. Apple she knew, oh, you wow. know, once Trump yeah. went over the parlor, uh, and that's where they were going to hang out on that free speech platform. AOC said, "You can't allow this. You, should, you need to take that down." She was instrumental in that process. And there's been articles that that came out on that. I'd love to see those. Yeah, Glenn Greenwald covered it in one of All his right. uh, Rumble episodes. Okay, yeah, one of the early ones before he actually started the nightly show. So if you want yeah. to date it, it, it's more than two weeks ago. So <laughs> it's it's not only a, a completely acceptable to be intolerant and kick people off of the main public square, but it, also, you want to ensure that they're not even allowed to meet anywhere where else and discuss. <laughs> right, that was always the big criticism. Look, if you want to have that kind of talk, go find your own space. So they did, and then they. <laughs> what really pisses me off is, is, again, it's the left doing this because I'm a leftist, I'm a progressive, and yeah. it's it's it's, uh, it's shocking to me that, that yeah. liberals and and many progressives like AOC are are censoring. It's so un-American. I just. It, it's it's scary and it's and it's and it's um, frustrating as a leftist myself to, to witness this shit happening. I just what's gone into these people's heads? They just they've given up on 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 the whole idea of free speech. I, I go back to John Stuart Mill frequently, and you've kind of alluded to this in 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 your own way. The antidote to bad speech is more speech, ridicule, as you said, and and other ways of embarrassing people. Right? You let them speak and then mock them and, and, and show their weaknesses of their argument and so forth. Right. Not censorship. I just don't get it. They, they've lost that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And certainly a lot, it, it's true that you know, we have tremendous numbers of people on Team Reality uh, that were, were progressives and leftists. And a lot of them just feel homeless and lost. They're like, what's going on now? Because now they're associated with the right. Yeah, I said, and they're like, I've never been on the right. And I just believe that these interventions don't make any sense at all. And I don't believe in censorship. And in fact, the damages from these these interventions have disproportionately crushed the poor and developing worlds. All the stuff that the left would have typically been their bread and butter um, is just ignored. Uh, and it's not really because I think, I mean, the left got associated with lockdowners, which was like, it became a, a cult-like new righteous group concerning cleanliness of this, these, this kind of, you know, it brought in a whole new kind of weird philosophy that ended up now correlating for no good reason, being associated with the left. And so now it's like this weird monster religion that has no principled core as far as I can tell. As podcasters, the three of us going forward with this, it sounds to me like there's a grave risk we, we're under, and along with everyone else who does any sort of public speech of, of being censored and canceled, right? If we were to say something that, let's say we made the case for lying, obviously you don't want a, an American spy who's been captured by the enemy to tell the truth, and you're not going to tell the truth if somebody comes to your door with an AK-47 looking for your child. Hey, where's your son? Oh, yeah, right, right. he's up in the room. Boy. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons people lie, but you can make the case for lying in, in, in uh, certain situations and find yourself canceled because everyone's clinging to truth under any circumstance. And I'm just wondering... Cancelization is is inherent in anything outside a very narrow range of speech, left or right. Is, is that fair? That as we do as podcasters, we're on the risk of being canceled ourselves. Oh well, I mean, sure, yeah. I, I, I think you're always worried. I mean, if you're on YouTube, if you're planning on putting this up on any of those some some of these 
particular places, you know where they are, then you know you're not safe and you've got to go through and cut carefully what you're putting in. If you're going to rumble, you're okay. You know where you can. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think this is not new uh, in, in all of these kinds of, uh, especially when there are mass hysterias, which I use in a very generalized way. Not They don't, they don't always need to be uh, anything. Mass hysterias aren't with hysterical people. Um, it, the word mass is modifying it such that everybody's ending up doing something irrational, but individually, no one is irrational. The irrationality comes at the mass or the group or the emergent level. And the, when these things happen, um, any type of event like that always evolves to have uh, uh, certain kinds of things like membership signals. In this case, it was masks as well as a bunch of uh, that signal membership in this righteous group justifications for why that membership signal is itself virtuous and good to have, namely masks. And it has to be kind of a crazy thing that serves as the membership signal. It can't be irrational because if it was rational, your opponents would do it too. Because like if it was just wearing a cool hat, everybody do it. It has to be something a little bit weird or irrational or arbitrary. Um, and invariably the views of the other side are then justified as, as, as evil, unclean, um, should be uh, brushed aside and, and pushed down. So these things constantly happen, and uh, they happen much more so when there's a sudden rush of danger and panic like there was in March. So I feel like I've, we've all seen hints of this in small scale in our own countries pre-2020. I feel like for the first time, all of us saw it in action. Because in 2020, within one week, the whole world flipped upside down, and there was like a new religion two weeks you know, uh, just stay home for two weeks and then it became that. And we saw what was usually some weird stuff that we attributed to weird Middle Easterners or Germans in World War II or Chinese. And it would never happen here. No, it's we're all as you know, smart people were always saying it can be any of us. And I always believed it can be any of us. But now, you know, we to see it in real time uh, is is life changing. Uh, it, for those that were in the mass hysteria, they have no idea anything happened. <laughs> they were just right. They were just like, oh, we were just doing really public health policy, you know, smart uh, solutions. And uh, we don't know why you guys are so pissed off at us. And, you know, now you're, the, you know, they don't see it. Right? It's interesting. I, actually, to I'm in that group. I'm who, in that category. Go ahead, Michael. OK. Yeah, it's interesting to see people here in Pasadena. You can almost tell their politics by the fact of if they're wearing a mask out in public um, sure. versus not. Um, Definitely. It, because we don't have to wear our masks anymore. I, I have to wear it when I go to, to work on campus. But uh, other than that, it, general public, I I, um, I don't have to wear a mask. So when I see someone wearing a mask, I, I know I, I know almost immediately where they're coming from. Right. And what they bought into. Yeah. It, it can be very nuanced, though, because I know some people that are like more like um conservative and they're still you know freaking out um and they were like all in on it too but then i've got you know then you know a few i know a few liberals that weren't and everything so it is very nuanced well i'm 67 i wear a mask these days because of rsv there's no vaccine the shit can kill someone my age i still wear a mask as long as it's around is RSV a rest- I don't know anything. I don't know anything about it. Is it a is it a, a viral aerosol or is it? Yes, it's a respiratory disease, very contagious, much like COVID. Maybe not as uh, contagious as um, the um, the newer 
uh, changes, the newer, uh, what, what's the word I want? Variants. 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 But, uh, yeah, it's, it's quite it's quite uh, contagious and deadly toward with children and older older Americans. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a whole a whole nother conversation about efficacy of masks, which is sort of outside of this discussion. So, yeah. Another topic that's outside this conversation, and I started to say I'm one of those people you're referring to because I didn't think at the time there was many options toward lockdowns. What is the option? What what should we have done? I know we're, this is definitely off the topic of censor or uh, uh, cancel culture, but if lockdowns was the wrong way to go, and I understand all the problems you've presented with lockdowns, how do you proceed without? I mean, we lost a million Americans with lockdowns. How how do what, what was the alternative? Well, first of all, you, I, I, the the numbers that people float out there for how many people died of COVID are uh are not correct the you you the counting the way that they count covid first of all is totally different than the way they always counted for flu flu was a particular methodologies that they would use for count counting flu and then they would trot out some flu number from 2019 or 2018 and compare it to completely systematically different kinds of counting procedures for how they're counting covid which involves with covid it's it's going through all is where they're actually now measuring and testing, whereas back most flu deaths would be people in old folks' homes and long-term care homes, people that are over 80, and they weren't categorized as flu deaths. They never did a test. They're just old. It's usually a flu that takes you out, and they're just not recorded. So these are systematically biased uh, 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 or in apples to oranges kinds of things. So the number million, it's not even a million in the first year, it was millions spread over two and a half years, which is, of course, you never counted flus Oh, we just accumulated over time and you know it would just be a yearly or, or a winter season kind of count so these things are just never made any sense um and even back in in april and may there was these nice documents going through how the cdc's procedures for flu were all fundamentally uh, different and incomparable systematically different than the way they were counting COVID. now you could argue there's good reasons maybe for counting COVID differently because now we were interested and was we're worried that it's a pandemic but you can't then go say that it's 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 bad. Well, it's bad compared to what? Bad compared to flu? No, you didn't measure it in the same way, right? So, two, many of these deaths, even in the first wave, even the New York Times by June or July of 2020 admitted that up to one third of the first, um, it was something like 300,000 deaths by the by summer. There was they were claiming around 300,000. They already admitted that at least a third of them were not due to COVID per se. They were due to panicked changes in medical practice. And so suddenly they were putting everybody on intubation because that was suddenly, they would never put in people on intubation, old people on intubation when they had uh, had a, a respiratory virus, but they were suddenly doing it because they thought we should put them on respiratory virus or uh, uh, intubation so it doesn't spread the aerosols all over the hospital. But if you're gonna keep an older patient on intubation, you've gotta sedate them heavily because it's very uncomfortable. And suddenly you had all these patients dying who usually wouldn't. And after a few months they said, holy shit, we need to go back to standard practice. The standard way that we did it, and often this is the problem when you start, standard practice is often not something that's written and designed by a centralized committee. Standard practice happens over many different groups and populations over time and countries who just sort of fall into something that works and they've sort of evolved to a point that it works. And you start fucking with it and changing it in a panicked, non-evidence-based way, you're almost always gonna move out of that local you know, optimum that they found. And so, a lot of this first peak 
um, was in fact we call lockdown deaths. I like to call them hysteria deaths because there were so many hysterical or panic changes to, to practice. People suddenly refused to go to the hospital because they were told the hospitals were packed. And so they're dying at home. They're never getting treated or they're, they're seeing their doctors, but they're seeing their doctors like I am seeing you through you know, a cyber meeting. You know, the way that doctors, the first way that doctors, uh, since the Greeks, the way that you diagnose the pa a patient or is looking at the symptoms or the signs on their skin. And you see that through the pallor and the color of the skin, whether it's cyanosis, erythema, all of the kinds of subtle, like my ex-wife used to be is a neurologist. A lot of these things are not color-based, but there's these, you look with your brilliant human eyes and ears and to see these kinds of signs. You don't see most of these things on camera at all, especially the color ones. All the color stuff is lost by virtue of these cameras. So that's suboptimal care because everybody's suddenly seeing. So there's all of these deaths, excess deaths that have happened, not just over the first two months, um, which is the whole spike um, looks completely non-organic. You look over back a hundred years, you see no spike in the like this at all. This And there was, uh, COVID was circulating through January and February with no spike in deaths. The spike happened exactly when it was announced by the WHO that there's a pandemic and everybody freaked out. And when you have a big freak out section and se session, deaths will occur because, you know, suddenly they're sending all of these COVID uh, 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 infected people back to, you know, uh, long-term care homes. And so you end up with all of these deaths by virtue of the reaction, which is in fact the precautionary principles. The, the precautionary principle was trotted out which pisses me off. They trotted it out and says, yeah, we're just following the precautionary principle. So they actually believed that the precautionary principle says, if there's dangers around, take precaution. Do you think we need a principle, some interesting philosophical principle to tell precautions when there's something dangerous? No, the precautionary principle is that if you're going to propose a new policy, a new intervention that's untested, then the burden is on you to show that it works without you know, undue harm. The point of the precautionary principle is that when people come up in emergency situations where they're afraid, they come up with interventions. Humans have a tendency to hurt themselves because that's just what humans do. When you start mucking with the system, you'll end up with harms that you can't anticipate. So what do you protect yourself from is your human self-induced harms. And precautionary principles, just a burden of evidence kind of argument. The burden of evidence was on those who wanted to suddenly do lock, lock down a healthy population, place masks in front of healthy, entire healthy populations of people, uh, you know, keep children home. None of these things were standard practice before 2020. The burden of evidence was on them. Uh, the cost benefit analyses that should have been done were on them. But if you mentioned cost benefit analyses, you were a denier, right? You were a grandma killer to even, you just were greedy for money because you're including the cost benefit. That was the attitude in March. I mean, if you were involved in these kinds of arguments. So what we should have done, um, well, this, first of all, simplest thing in terms of a contrast would be if we had done nothing, if we had done nothing, well, people who are susceptible, immunocompromised older people will stay at home or they, they need to, their families and them would have tried to isolate themselves. And that would have been infinitely better than the kinds of excess deaths that we have, we had, and we will have for long periods of time before, by virtue of this. Um, and if people had kept them, this is what ended up being focused protection, the, you know, the, the Great Barrington Resolution, which is not interesting in at all. It is standard practice. The nice thing about respiratory viruses is that there's usually 
five orders of magnitude between the dangers for kids and the dangers for people that are 80 plus. There's this, you know, five orders of magnitude, you know, it's like 15, 20, 50,000 times difference. So there's no reason to treat the general population all as if they're one thing. And it's counterproductive because you have most of the population that's, you know, under 70 has a 0.05% infection fatality rate or less, you know, that's including all of them. For them, it's a cold. In fact, for, for healthy younger people, it was safer than the flu. For older, it was worse than your average flu. But you want the young folks, they're gonna get it anyway, just let them get it. And once they get it, the old people can come out because now it's not circulating as much through the system because there's all these people that have natural immunity and it hits them and it stops, right? Because it's, it just doesn't move on. They don't transmit it because they don't get it. You want it to happen more quickly so all the old people can come out, all the immunocompromised people can come out and then participate in society. And they only are safe to come out once the population has natural immunity. Otherwise, you're just, just the time that they're under risk of eventually getting, and they eventually are because nurses are going back out of the world at long-term care homes. They don't just live permanently at the place or service workers are showing up bringing food. Somebody's infecting somebody who's gonna infect the old people there. And it's only a matter of time, right? So focusing protection on those who are most vulnerable was the thing to do. It's not easy, but um, you know who they are and it's, you know, it's, it couldn't be, uh, I mean, it's not like we're talking a 10% more danger for them. No, like you know, 50,000, 20,000 times more dangerous for them. So it's really easy to know who to target. Well, it's almost logarithmic at a certain point in age. Get over 65, and that's when it starts, the danger starts, or the statistics start building up rapidly. Well, it's a, on, a log, on a log plot, um, on, a, you know, on, a lo, uh, on a log vertical plot, it's actually very uh, straight, which means it's exponential throughout the whole range. Um, so it's, it's just really exponential. Maybe down at the bottom, you get to like, you know, six months old or some, it curves and does something funny because it's just a little bit different down there. But once you're, it's pretty much a straight line, uh, which means it's, it's just perfectly exponential. Let's hope our podcast doesn't get canceled anytime soon for going on too long. Dr. Ching Easy, why don't you tell us a little bit about your lawsuit against the U.S. government and we'll get everyone's final thoughts. Yeah, so um, uh, Changizi versus the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, the New Civil Liberties Alliance uh, is, uh, Janine uh, Eunice is our lawyer on point with the New Civil Liberties Alliance, and the other two uh, uh, litigants with me are Michael Singer and Daniel Kotzen. And so our uh, we started our lawsuit in March, I believe, of 2021, uh, of 2022, of this year. And we... Uh, then went to court in April or May, and we were dismissed through what he, the judge eventually said was a lack of evidence. Now, which was, uh, to me, interesting because the federal government was telling us that they were censoring us. They were threatening uh, out loud, uh, Twitter and Facebook and YouTube, that they better uh, uh, censor the misinformers who are responsible for killing people, lest you be responsible for killing people. And it would be a shame if something happened uh, and we had to do antitrust regulation or take away their uh, 230 uh, special status. So they're explicitly threatening them. They're saying we're colluding and working with them simultaneously. So I don't know what else a, a judge needs. But at any rate, we were the first one. Then the attorneys general of uh, Louisiana and Missouri, if I remember, um, then also sued the federal government on First Amendment grounds about two or three months after this. They made it farther because by then more FOIA requests were out 
and um, they actually deposed Fauci earlier, just a couple months ago, and a bunch of other figures. So there's now evidence from the, what they brought out from a dozen different federal departments uh, working with uh, Twitter and and uh, so big tech social media to coordinate, collude, uh, and always this implicit threat. Uh, there's just overwhelming evidence. And then now Elon Musk, uh, we, we appealed even before Elon had done any of these Twitter files, um, because in the, it, there's suddenly mountains of evidence was available that wasn't when we first went to the court. So our appeal, we have seven amicus briefs from uh, various high-profile uh, folks in our in, in, in either explicitly or implicitly for us. And uh, now with Twitter, uh, with the Twitter files, I don't, you know, in principle, it's a slam dunk, but as you know, I mean, anything can happen in these courts, even if it's irrational. But it should be the case that it's a slam dunk that one or other of the or both of us of these cases um, wins. Now, what I don't know, and I'm not a legal expert, is that even if we win, what then? Where's the teeth? And I really don't even still know the answer to this. They can still potentially just ignore it. I mean, I'm not sure what what can happen. Like they could just still now I mean, they can't ignore it on Twitter, but they can certainly. Uh, because you know Musk's in charge, but uh, you know what happens that in, ours isn't isn't a, a, about Instagram per se, but it's really trying to be more general than Twitter, suing the federal government, it's not suing Twitter. But I'm unsure really what it can be done. Uh, certainly, it'd be a moral uh, victory for us and uh, a loss for them. But then again, no one's going to cover it. <laughs> and if you post about it at Facebook, it might be censored, right? So, did it ever happen? You know, these are the kinds of things that keep one up at night, that even if you have a great victory in terms of the First Amendment, um, what have you won and that what has it changed? Uh, what has changed by virtue of it, it's, it's unclear. All right. Well, that's terribly depressing. <laughs> <laughs> Happy New Year. <laughs> yeah. I, I commend you, though, for, for, for trying, um, you know, it's a David and Goliath sort of situation, but it's like, you know, it's got to be done. You know, it, yeah, if people just sit idly by. You know what? What good is yeah. that? And you're right. So I think another, a less uh, depressing way to describe it is that each time there are these victories, they are used in future court cases as precedent for a, that build. These things can build over many of these court cases. Can then ultimately build uh, and and can make a change. You know, not necessarily after we win. Supposing we were to win, but it could be that it's a key rung in a ladder that ultimately creates some actual change later. Well, if you do win, hopefully we can get you come back and you can describe it, and maybe uh, we'll be a small piece of having your victory actually mean something. That'd be great. Yeah. yeah. All right, Mark. Anything you want to you want to plug? Uh, tell a little bit about the book. Where can people find you? You can find Expressly Human um, at uh, bookstores uh, everywhere, and uh, and uh, uh, you know you can find my YouTube uh, Science Moment channel at YouTube under my name, Mark Changizi, and you'll find it. All right, sounds good. Michael, I'm going to turn it back over to you. We've come to the end of our journey this week on Bob Dan. We're so grateful you took this voyage with us. Join us next time as we discuss the recent conflict in Ukraine and why supporting them is unjustified. In the meantime, send us your thoughts at poddamnfeedback at gmail.com. And if you want to contribute to us financially, we have several resources for that. All of which, as well as our social media, can be found on our website, poddam.com. And be sure to catch up on our full back catalog of episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get finer podcasts. For Victor Tiffany, Papa Beaver, and Dr. Mark Changizi, I've been Michael Johnson. Thanks for cruising with us.
This has been Pod Dam, a production of Barnaby Smythe Incorporated, copyright 2023, all rights reserved.